Coming up today, Simone Biles and the brutal pressure of elite sport and how the UK's NHS app became an unofficial COVID passport. You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Amit Katwala. Hello. Matt Burgess. Hello. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. This was the week when the pandemic reached new heights in the UK, with almost 700,000 people sent a self-isolation alert in England and Wales in the week up to July 21st, the most recent week for which data is available. The app has been criticised for sending out too many alerts, something that has been perceived as a bad thing, despite it being one of the last remaining measures in place to protect people from the Delta variant, as almost all other restrictions are lifted. This was also the week when Sony revealed that it has sold 10 million PlayStation 5s, making it the fastest-selling console in the company's history. That's despite widespread shortages driven by bot scalping and a global chip shortage. And finally, this was the week when Rick Astley's smash hit Never Gonna Give You Up has passed 1 billion views on YouTube. It was originally released 34 years ago, but has obviously been boosted by Rick Rowling um, over the last few years. Uh, On April Fool's Day alone this year it received 2.3 million views showing its longevity in being a meme has anyone been rick surely no one's rick i mean obviously people are rick rolling still has anyone been rick rolled recently no silence stunned silence let's move straight on to facts matt burgess you've got one about bladders yeah, and in particular, um, the bladders of mammals. So uh, this week I learned that an elephant's bladder can hold nearly five gallons, which is around 18 litres of fluid, um, and yet it can pee just as quickly as a cat. So a study a few years ago revealed that uh, most mammals larger than rats urinate for about the same amount of time, and on average that time is for 21 seconds. Are we meant to be surprised by this? Were we, were we expecting that elephants would urinate especially slowly? No, I, I don't know, really, to be honest. I, it's not something I'd thought too much about before I learned this fact. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I don't have anything more to contribute than th- just that. Well, thank you very much for that. Matt Reynolds, from, from bladders to Uranuses. That's right. So I learned this week that Uranus was originally called George. <laughs> so when the planet was discovered by the astronomer William Herschel in 1781... He named it Georgium Sidus, which is George's star in Latin, in honour of his patron, King George III. Unfortunately, other astronomers disliked how Anglo-centric this name was. So in 1850, Her Majesty's Nautical Almanac Society agreed to switch the name to Uranus. So originally, Uranus was called George for 70 years, then changed to the more familiar Uranus. Who was Uranus named in honour of? Now, I think Uranus is some Greek god or something, but I did find out that other proposed names included Neptune, Great Britain, and something like Neptune, Britain is great at fighting, because astronomers were really, really excited about the Napoleonic Wars or, you know, Britain's navy at the time, so they wanted to name the planet in uh, in honour of Britain. Well, presumably, the people that didn't like 
calling it naming it after King George hated the idea that it would be called Neptune Great Britain. So as it turned out, Uranus is a better option for everyone. One of the best planets. One of the best planet names. Much better than George, which would have just been wholly underwhelming uh, amongst Jupiter and Mars. And then there's George. All right. um, Our first story this week is about the Olympics and one athlete in particular. This week, high-profile US gymnast Simone Biles made headlines around the world after she pulled out of two Olympic events, citing concerns over her state of mind. It highlighted the unique pressure Olympic athletes face, particularly this year, and it's a pressure that really has gotten worse because of the the Olympics taking place during a pandemic. That's right, James. Yeah, these games have been really, really unusual uh, and they've brought the men not not only because of the pandemic because they've brought the mental health of athletes front and center a uh, sports psychologist i spoke to called jc perry says she's witnessed a huge rise in people contacting her for help with performance anxiety during the pandemic she says that with so many differences in our lives we're all a lot closer to the edge of anxiety and certain environments can push us closer to the edge whether it's being in an unfamiliar environment being in company that we don't like being hungry or, or you know being in a pandemic is quite a big one but it's kind of pushed us all i think to this level of anxiety and it's affecting athletes as well and simone biles isn't the only one right japanese tennis star naomi osaka who's previously been quite vocal in the pressures that she faces and the impact that that has on us she's cited the olympics and the pressures that she's faced and her mental health after being knocked out of the singles tournament. You know, there's there's a lot going on for these athletes, but it won't just be Saka and Biles who are facing these challenges. So what's going on? And you hinted at it there, but what's unique about these Olympics and the effects that they're having on athletic performance? Yeah, so obviously there's the emotional side of things, which we're going to get into later, and that's a really, really important consideration. But on the performance side, you know, in situations where athletes are under anxiety, anxiety can affect their performance by triggering what's called an amygdala hijack. So this is an oversimplification, but essentially the, the primitive parts of the brain, the fear-driven parts of the brain, um, hijack reasoning, bypassing more rational areas and flooding the body with stress hormones like cortisol. This can lead to a fight, flight or freeze response. Athletes might panic and make bad decisions or they might focus on skills that should be easy and automatic and think about them too much. Um, but as I said, yeah, as well as affecting performance, it also exerts an emotional toll. And I think that's one of the things that's finally starting to be recognised as the pandemic has pushed these underlying issues to the fore. It's kind of easy, perhaps, or it was easy to dismiss how big of an impact all this disruption is having on athletes competing in the 2020 Games. I mean, for one, we're having the 2020 Games in 2021. For two, there are no fans. And some people are still saying, oh, well, they should just kind of get on with it and you know um we shouldn't be celebrating quitters which is obviously not the way to respond to the issues that these athletes are facing so great britain's jay jones who was the favorite going into the women's taekwondo but lost in the round of 16 said that the whole tournament had been really really different to what she was used to she said usually i have my whole family there and when i'm scared when i come out them cheering gives me that extra push to go for it and of her getting knocked out in the round of 16, she said that she got trapped in what she calls fear mode. And fear is an interesting word, and she obviously uses it very deliberately. What does Jay Jones mean by it, do you think, Amit? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think Team GB in particular over the last few years has spent a lot of money and time on sports psychologists, and I think they've taught athletes this whole sort of 
they've given athletes support structures and a language around their performance right so it's working with people like dr steve peters to think about your brain in the particular way and i think fear mode and language like that probably comes from that it has its roots in the support structures that have been put in place for these athletes uh and it's interesting to see them recognizing it now that they're in an environment where their support structures don't exist anymore but i think generally it's that sense of being unable to focus on what you need to do because you're so worried about not being able to do that thing right it's that fear of failure that fear of not you know, she was the double Olympic champion, defending champion going into these games, right? So she had a huge amount of pressure on her. Um, Simone Biles talked about having the twisties, losing herself in midair and having no idea where her body was. That was one of the reasons that she pulled out because that's really, really scary and dangerous for gymnasts. And her head just wasn't in the right place going into these flips and twists and stuff. Athletes in other sports have similar afflictions. So, you know, they, people talk about the yips in cricket and golf or dartitis in darts. And one of the ways that the amygdala hijack that I talked about before can manifest itself is through what's called paralysis by analysis. So athletes train for years to make these complex skills automatic, but in a fearful, anxious environment, they can pay too much attention to them again. And these skills revert to being slow and clunky. Like, And if you're, half, if you're in midair doing a you know, complicated flip in gymnastics, you don't want to be like, thinking step by step through what you're doing because it's too slow you need to be in a position where you just kind of execute it and it happens almost naturally without you really having to think about it and paralysis by analysis stops that from happening and what people mean by the yips in in, there's there's two types of yips but when, when they talk about this kind of yips it's it's that kind of fight fight or freeze response but at a chronic level rather than just a temporary one off and you could maybe see this coming in the build-up to these games you know as i said before we're holding the 2020 olympics in 2021 there are no fans in attendance and even a few days before the olympics started there were strong suggestions that they might not go ahead at all because of rising coronavirus infection rates in japan and particularly in tokyo and for elite athletes who have spent years preparing so that things do come to them instinctively so they don't have to think about these incredibly challenging technical procedures that they're going to have to go through this is all really hard to handle and it adds to an already considerable pressure not just to perform but for athletes like Osaka and Biles and Jade Jones to win gold and be heroes yeah you're right James and you know they'll have spent ordinarily they would have spent four years kind of preparing for these these few weeks and then to find out last year that you know with a couple of months notice that oh no actually that's not going to happen and you have to reset your whole training schedule is stress enough in itself but you know then they've got to japan and the environment of the games is far from what athletes will have experienced at previous games a long way from what they might have expected you know from holding camps that they were placing on arrival to the absence of support staff who would normally be on hand but who are now stuck you know behind a video call thousands of miles away Athletes might be worried or distracted by the situation at home. They might have had relatives who've suffered during the pandemic or they might be comparing themselves to rivals from other countries. You know, did the athletes that they're competing against have to follow the same stringent rules around training? You know, we've seen, uh, or at least there's been lots of footage of athletes, you know, improvising training solutions at home when leisure centres were closed for swimmers. For example, there's a clip of one of the British swimmers in a swimming pool literally tethered to the wall, like that Simpsons Simpsons joke, you know, tethered swimming, where he's like, that's the only way he can train uh, because he's got a small pool and he needs to swim, swim so that he's like tied to the wall while he like swims. And that's got to affect your training. And if you get to the games and you think, okay, well, maybe the other athletes didn't have to do that. They haven't been affected as much as me. That can lead to negative thinking and that can spiral out of control and it's it's generally this uncertainty anytime you put uncertainty in a situation it comes with psychological stress is what david shearer who is a professor of elite performance psychology at the university of south wales told me 
He said that some athletes thrive on that and rise to the challenge. For others, it may impact their well-being. And it comes down to the individual's skill level in dealing with those thoughts. And it's a skill that they might not have had to have used very much. You know, if they're used to certain routines, the calendar of events, the way of building up and preparing for those events, and then all of a sudden they're thrown into an environment that should be familiar. It's the Olympics, but it's not familiar because everything is different. So without a crowd or access to their familiar support groups, you know, a number of Olympians have spoken of not being able to hear their family cheering or not being able to spend time with their friends and family during the games as a release and everything, you know, you're you're essentially stuck inside this Olympic atmosphere. So the only way that athletes have to interact with the outside world is virtually and a big part of that is social media so whereas before social media would have played a part in the way that the athletes experienced these olympic games they're now having a really really outsized impact and that's got to have quite an effect on performance and potentially anxiety levels Absolutely, yeah. Social media has been used to reduce distance. There's been there was a clip this morning from or last night from the BMX um, when the British woman won gold. There's like a little Zoom station that they've got set up, so they've got like a video link for her family watching, and she tried to have a conversation with them, but it wasn't really like working properly, and it was just kind of, I guess it it brought home the the difference because ordinarily they would have been there in person, and she would have been hugging them and celebrating with them. So social media has been, I guess. Uh, some sort of substitute so it reduces distance and it lets olympians stay in touch with their friends and family at home but it also means that they're hooked up to a sort of 24-hour stream of comment and abuse from the general public from journalists and other you know sort of media commentators this is kind of unprecedented star athletes are expected to be always on now you know to carry the weight of a nation not only during competition but also the rest of the time to be model citizens the rest of the time you know in the 80s or 90s an athlete who had lost a a big event could go to their hotel room unplug their phone and be alone they could go out with their friends and go to a nightclub and get really drunk if they wanted to and they'd know that it was unlikely that they'd get photos taken of them and, and you know go viral for that now they'll have people tagging them on social media criticizing their performance or you know as we saw with the euros even bombarding them with racist abuse after a defeat um but it's not as simple as saying, oh, well, they should just get off social media then. Because for many athletes, their livelihood is also linked to their online presence, right? Medals might make the headlines, but it's sponsorship deals that pay the mortgage. Uh, Josephine Perry, the sports psychologist, said it's a horrible cycle. And she also she's interviewed loads of athletes about their relationship with the media. And what athletes say is that they feel that social media squishes everything down into a few words. It condenses them into, you know, a colour of medal. Did they win or not? Did they get a medal or not? And it takes away their personality and makes them into one sentence. And that's another form of pressure. And the athletes that she interviewed said it's like the really nasty comments that stick in the mind, even if they are far outweighed by positive ones. And even amongst all that noise on social media, there have been innumerable bad and hasty Simone Biles hot takes this week. And it's easy to lose focus on what's really happened and what it means for her and athletics at large. You know, for some people, Biles quitting is a bad thing. But she's making it clear that it's okay to quit. She's taking control, right, of her own narrative. And as you were saying there, she's using social media to speak directly, not just to her fans, but to the wider world, to people that are 
only really watching her perform once every four years at the Olympics. And it might sound a bit corny, but it's really, really important. So previously, someone in Biles' position, despite her global fame, didn't really have a voice. And now she does. And she's using it really effectively. Yeah, I think it was really interesting how when she first pulled out, the whole discourse was around, oh, she must have injured her ankle. She must have, you know, hurt herself. I wonder what happened. Oh, maybe there was like video analysis going around. Oh, here's the moment where we we think she got injured. And actually, it wasn't anything to do with that. And I think maybe in the past, athletes in Biles' situation would have pretended to have been injured or carried on and injured themselves, you know, in an attempt to avoid speaking up about mental health, right? And I think the Tokyo Olympics have been really, really tough for athletes, but they could also prove to be a turning point in the way that we think about mental health in athletes, but also the way we think about it in our own lives. Um, Josephine Perry, the sports psychologist, says that we all have our own version of this, you know, these high-profile events, driving tests, a speech that goes wrong. And the more we are open and honest about the anxiety that we feel leading up to those events, the more better performances that will lead to in the long run. And she makes the point that, you know, her focus is on well-being first and performance second, because when an athlete is comfortable they're more likely to perform better. And I think that's a really, really important realisation. One of the things that David Shearer told me is that, you know, five, ten years ago, Team GB and the whole kind of sports psychologist environment around it was really, really focused on performance and mental well-being was kind of an an afterthought. Whereas actually, I think now they're realising that those two things go hand in hand. We've seen parallels in that across sport. The um, English men's cricket team who went from one of the worst test playing nations in the world to the best and won the Ashes. Um, Players like Jonathan Trott and Andrew Strauss and Kevin Peterson. Um, Off the back of that, they've spoken very candidly about the incredible mental pressure that they felt, which just wasn't addressed at the time because this new field of sort of elite sports performance and using psychology to drive people right to the brink, that was seen as a really, really useful tool for creating the, the the best sports people in the world. But what we've now come to realise, belatedly, but necessarily, is that obviously these people are human beings and you can't just push and push and push and push. And it's been quite interesting to see the way that Olympic athletes are portrayed, the way that they're marketed, right? That they are heroes, superheroes, um, but what Biles has shown, and perhaps she's she's put forward as a superhero above most others, she's shown that actually I'm a human being and I need to quit. I need to take a step back from this because I'm not comfortable taking part in this event. And that is an incredibly brave thing to do. And as you say, Amit, hopefully we'll start a better discussion about who these athletes are and what we should expect of them, if you like, right? Yeah, I think... <laughs> what she did is really really brave but she's also in a position where she was able to do that like I think four years ago going into her first Olympic Games having won you know not won anything or not won anything as high profile as an Olympics it might have been a very difficult decision I think uh, a younger athlete going into feeling the same things going into the same situation may not have felt that the current environment would have let them be as open and honest about pulling out you know at the risk of jeopardizing their career so I think there was a lot of progress to be made um but I think you're right you know I think you're right absolutely right about how they get portrayed as superheroes and and actually they're they're just people and we expect far too much of athletes just because they're in the public eye and I think hopefully that these games will open up a discussion about mental health that will trickle down into society at large as well I think just before we started recording this on Friday morning in the UK, The Athletics 
was getting going, um, which is for many people where the Olympics really kick into gear, you know, the biggest events with the biggest audiences and the most hype and the biggest superstars, Simone Biles and people like Naomi Osaka aside, you know, the men's 100 metre final um, track and field events are always the really, really big draws. And it'll be interesting to see in the unique circumstances of Tokyo 2020, what happens and what kind of discussions we're having about the performance of athletes and oh it looks like he's pulled his hamstring well maybe not maybe there's something else going on then the more open we can be about those sort of conversations and the more open athletes feel they can be about the way that they're thinking and feeling the better podcast at wired.co.uk what have you made of the pandemic olympics of um, huge events with no fans um, and the impact that all of this is having on some of our favourite sports stars. Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that or anything else that we talk about on the podcast this week. Our second story today is about vaccine passports, sort of. Sort of, that's right. So if you're in England and Wales, you'll remember back in September 2020 when the long-awaited COVID-19 tracking app was released. Obviously, it came with lots of fuss around you know, security and if it would be helpful. And it's played a really big role in the, the pandemic you were talking about earlier on, James. Now, you might have used it to scan a QR code or check into a venue. And as I said, if you're unlucky, you'll have been pinged because you're in close proximity with someone who had a positive COVID-19 test. But now another app is becoming important and it's kind of going to dictate this next phase of the pandemic, hopefully as we kind of move a little bit out of the pandemic. And this is one that's actually been around a long time and it's just called NHS app, right Matt? It is. Um, So the NHS app has become increasingly popular in recent months. Um, And as you said, Matt, uh, this isn't a new app, but it's one that's been around for quite a while. Before the pandemic, uh, this app was used to book GP appointments and access medical records for people. But in recent months, it's become uh, home to something that's called the NHS COVID Pass. Uh, millions of people have downloaded the NHS app since the COVID Pass was introduced, and it's now had more than uh, 10 million downloads altogether. I think in the last couple of months, it was uh, uh, 2 million people uh, having downloaded that like. Uh, just over a period of a few weeks. Um, and it's a very different app to the tracking app that you mentioned. Um, and if you're confused about the NHS app with its COVID pass and the NHS COVID-19 app um, that are different things, then you may not be alone. Um, so the original NHS COVID app, which you mentioned, Matt, is uh, the one which has been using Bluetooth to try and notify people when they may have been exposed to somebody who has tested positive for coronavirus and was introduced in September last year after a lot of fuss. Um, but this different NHS app is more of a standalone thing um, and they have different purposes essentially. Yeah I have to say when I first heard about this app and that this would be where the Covid pass was I was like oh yeah I've already downloaded that you know I downloaded that in, in September and then got very confused because it's this separate app that you have to log in and verify your identity so so yeah they're two separate apps and I think a lot of people would perhaps have been a little bit confused over that but the reason we're talking about this NHS app, this app that's been around for quite a long time, is because that's where these vaccine passports are going to be. So how are they going to work in England and Wales? Yeah, so while we're talking about the apps really here, we're sort of not talking about the apps as well. So um, as I mentioned, there is a thing called the NHS COVID Pass, um, which is uh, where where the digital version of 
uh, this lives is inside the NHS app. Um, and the NHS COVID pass has essentially become a tool for people who are looking to engage freely with society once again. Um, it's essentially a vaccine passport in everything but an official name and it comes as a QR code inside the NHS app. So the NHS COVID pass uh, shows your coronavirus uh, vaccine status essentially uh, and this could be that you are um, that you've, you are fully vaccinated um, or it could also be uh, a case of you've had a negative COVID test within the last 48 hours or a proven diagnosis of COVID-19 with the, within the last 180, 180 days. Um, so within the UK and more specifically England and Wales uh, the Covid pass can be used in domestic events um, and there's also some circumstances where it can be used for international travel as well um, and, and broadly um, this is uh, the Covid pass is meant for adults if, if, if you're aged over 16 uh, then you can get the, the Covid pass for travel abroad and if you're over 18 you can get the NHS Covid pass for domestic events um, and it doesn't have to be in the app it's worth saying you can get a paper version of this for free from the NHS or download a PDF of it from its website um, so yeah there's a few different ways to get this uh, NHS Covid pass essentially. So this wasn't what the app was intended for to begin with and I'm guessing that although there may be a, a 10 million downloads now that at the start of the pandemic not so many people had a copy of the, the NHS NHS app. So why has the government decided to bundle this with this old legacy app as opposed to putting it with the COVID-19 tracking app that everyone's been told to download already? There are two big reasons really why the we have two versions of the apps and they come down to a bunch of technical engineering and implementation and also the infrastructure on which the COVID-19 uh, contact tracing app is created. Um, so when uh, we first have it, started having these contact tracing apps uh, last year, um, Apple and Google basically set the privacy standards and the standards of how um, the Bluetooth contact tracing would work on the phones that we all have through their operating systems. Um, and when the con when the COVID-19 COVID contact tracing apps were created, Apple and Google essentially said that uh, they should be anonymous, they shouldn't collect personal details about you uh, or your movements, they shouldn't collect location data, etc. Um, and that if a government or a health body wanted to use a Bluetooth contact tracing app, it would have to basically abide by these sorts of uh, principles around them, which led to quite a few big discussions around privacy, around what data Data. Uh, it would be useful for contact tracing apps to collect um, and essentially um, there was a few countries uh, that went and did their own thing uh, but most countries using these uh, contact tracing apps went with the Apple and Google protocols um, so the contract tracing apps including the NHS one doesn't know who you are uh, which means they can't identify you and that's really not the most useful if you want uh, to use an app or any other way of proving that somebody uh, where you know their identity has been vaccinated so the NHS COVID, uh, sorry, the NHS app, uh, the different one, which isn't the contact tracing app, essentially that uh, knows who you are and your identity and you have to log into that and you have to use your NHS number um, and its, its own privacy policy uh, says that the NHS COVID pass gathers data from the National Immunum 
Immunisation Management System, which is owned by the NHS England body in the UK. Um, and essentially, um, if the government had wanted to try and uh, build in vaccination or COVID status to the contact tracing app, it would have had to do a lot of uh, complex engineering. Um, and there would also have to be a lot of uh, sort of other measures in, put in place to make sure that it's possible. I think Germany uh, is using Apple and Google's protocols, but also uh, has managed to build in vaccination status or COVID status in some ways. Um, so some of the experts that we spoke to essentially said that uh, it makes sense for COVID status to be shown in the NHS app because it can be linked to medical records and it was just an easier way to build this type of system. However, as you pointed out, Matt, it might actually be a little bit confusing for uh, everybody who is tr- having to download two different apps for different purposes. And the upshot of all of this then is that vaccine passports that the government has been talking about since, you know, I remember talking about this in April last year. It's been on the cards for a really, really long time. These vaccine passports are finally here, or I guess more technically COVID immunity status certificates, sometimes they're called. They're finally here. So what are they actually going to be used for? Yeah, we're seeing in the UK a few different uh, approaches to how this is sort of rolling out, really. So as you mentioned, the government has been talking about this for a long time. uh, And it was just a couple of months ago when Boris Johnson said, came out and said in England uh, that uh, we're not planning on having official vaccine passport. So um, it's worth stating that this uh, COVID pass isn't mandatory uh, for for lots of things. You don't have to have it. You can get a paper version, etc. But more broadly, there is no mandatory use of any uh, vaccine passport system overall um but now that we're here um the uh the use of the COVID status uh, is actually sort of expanding a little bit. So uh, it can be used for international travel from the UK, um, which is pretty consistent with other countries uh, that require people to show proof of vaccine status or COVID status generally uh, to allow travel or to allow movement without quarantine within inside countries. Uh, the EU has got its digital COVID certificate, which essentially is the same. It's a, it's a QR code within an app that shows proof of vaccination, negative test, or if somebody's recovered from COVID-19. But within England, the government's guidance says that um, since the restrictions of all of our restrictions essentially have lifted on July the 19th, it is encouraging and supporting businesses and large events to use the NHS COVID pass in high risk settings. So essentially, it's encouraging its use in indoors or crowded uh, settings where people may be maybe a lot closer to other people. Um, So uh, the government has also said that it will consider mandating certification uh, in venues at a future date and that date has pretty much already sort of been announced so from the end of september nightclubs in england and other large venues where people will gather indoors will uh, only be allowed to accept customers who have received both uh, coronavirus vaccinations um, and the government has not ruled out requiring students to be vaccinated to attend university lectures as well it's a little bit more of a gray area when it comes to businesses um, so some businesses and settings such as uh, supermarkets and shops and essential retail Retailers are explicitly not allowed to refuse entry to people who uh, don't display the COVID uh, pass or don't use uh, use the app in any way. Um, so essentially, it's a bit different for them. Um, and while basically this is something that is still voluntary in England, its use is sort of expected in some areas. And uh, I think we'll probably see some businesses. Uh, workplaces looking uh, for people to show proof of vaccination as well. So in England and Wales, it's a little bit of a soft touch rollout. They're saying to businesses, well, you can use it, we'd we'd like you to use it, but 
at the end of the day, apart from in some circumstances, we're not going to refuse entry if you don't um, show this pass. Now, that's not the case in other parts of Europe, right? Some some countries are putting much uh, stronger legal backing behind the use of these passports and trying to use them as a way to prod people to take up vaccines. England and Wales, as you say, has actually, yeah, taken a very much of a route of sort of this is down to individual responsibility and individual business responsibility in, in most cases. But uh, in France, uh, a new law has been passed that uh, makes health passes mandatory for a number of indoor venues uh, as the country is facing a fourth wave of infections there. Uh, France's health pass, which again is uh, works in the same sort of way, requiring proof of vaccination or a negative test or COVID recovery. Um was already mandatory for some large events in stadiums and concert halls, but the new law that has been passed, uh, which comes into force in August uh, and can apply until November, extends the obligation to bars, restaurants, gyms and certain uh, shopping malls as well. So businesses that fail to enforce these rules can be fined as well, um, and individual employees could also face pay suspensions, according to reports from uh, France, if they fail to get vaccinated. Um, So also within France, a valid health pass is going to be required for non-urgent visits to medical facilities and long-distance train and bus rides. Young people uh, between sort of 12 and 17 are exempt from these rules uh, until the start of September. Um, But largely, uh, we're seeing around Europe a lot of countries sort of enforcing or starting to enforce uh, similar laws. Um, So... Um, proof of uh, COVID status is required in lots of different countries in a number of different settings. So Italy is also restricting many leisure activities uh, for for unvaccinated people from the start of August. Um, And Italy has decided that a green pass will be required to dine indoors or enter crowded venues such as theatres, stadiums, cinemas, gyms or museums. Uh, And in Croatia, Germany, Belgium, Switzerland, Portugal... Austria, Spain, Greece, I'm just naming European countries now, uh, they've all got uh, some situations where you need to provide uh, proof of COVID status. They, they slightly differ, but they're all largely similar. And as we've kind of hinted in this conversation, this isn't just about cutting down new infections and trying to prevent the spread of COVID-19. It's also about incentivizing people to take up vaccines. So France has taken a pretty hardline stance on this. Has it, has it worked? Has has you know, this mandated COVID pass encouraged people to go and get a jab? Yeah, so in short, it has really. Um, so since the law was passed around uh, needing COVID passes, uh, millions of people have booked appointments for um uh, for vaccination since it was announced. Um, so the French non-profit uh, Pasteur Institute said that the health pass effect has had a noticeable impact for the number of people getting vaccinated. Um, and that sort of incur- using a COVID pass to be able to uh, access various locations and things is and encourage uh, more people to get the vaccine is also something that uh, I, I think the UK is slightly looking at or being inspired by the sort of like French model. So uh, Dominic Rabb, one of the government ministers, said that uh, encouraging the use of the COVID pass is a little bit of uh, coaxing and cajoling people into getting the vaccine. Um, and that was when he was being asked about when students have to go to show their statuses for lectures. Um, and uh, Rabb said that... Uh, 
the government is only considering steps that uh, it will take to maximise the freedom for the vast majority of the country. Um, and we looked at in our reporting around uh, the use of vaccine passports. We also looked at some uh, research and modelling that's been done in the UK. Um, and that essentially said that if these were made mandatory or uh, increased in a lot of circumstances, you can expect sort of 1.5 million people uh, in England to co- and Wales to come forward and uh, take the vaccine uh, that have basically been putting it off. Um, so in, in some ways, it it is being shown to work as a tool to get more people encouraged uh, to take the vaccine. Uh, Despite that, I've heard some criticisms from people based in England and Wales that they're basically worried that maybe the NHS app is is becoming a more all-encompassing thing. And whenever something happens that requires some aspect of identity verification or personal data, people start talking about national digital ID schemes. And this is something that's been brought up in the context of this COVID path. People are saying, should we be worried about mission creep? Is this, I don't know, app going to be some kind of permanent health record or something like that? Do you think there's any validity to those concerns? Should we be worried about this? Yeah, England's got a very uh, checkered history with the idea of sort of a national ID card or national ID system in general. So back in sort of like 2011-ish, um, the, there was uh, suggestions, sorry, it was before for 2011 uh there was talk of introducing uh, id cards for everybody in the uk and those plans got scra- scrapped after a lot of concerns and in some ways these types of discussions are following around uh the, around the idea of a covid pass or a vaccine passport so uh civil liberties group uh called liberty in the uk has said that uh, it's criticized the government for expanding this beyond nightclubs uh they they argued that uh, vaccine passports create a two-tier system where some people can access goods and services and others are shut out uh they also say that some research shows that um essentially if people are feel like they're being coerced into doing certain things then um, they will become more wary of government programs overall and they say that vaccine passports could damage the uptake of the vaccine in some ways whether that's borne out in the truth uh, is something that uh, is uh, i think debatable at this stage um but also you've seen from sort of companies producing sort of digital vaccine passports that uh, they they suggest that these uh, types of uh, certifications or proof of uh, status could become part of a a, a new infrastructure normal essentially so one company uh called on trust uh said that essentially uh you could turn a vaccine passport into a national id program uh that could be used for multiple purposes including delivery of government services cross cross-border travel and other purposes as well the government in in england has denied that it'll ever be the case um and they uh, essentially say that it's likely as more people are vaccinated then covid status will be less important because there will be less sort of ambiguity if, if, if more people go out and get the vaccine so um yeah i think that that's the point of sort of like there is concern that these systems could uh, introduce new systems and things further down the line but at the moment for a lot of people obviously getting the vaccine is a priority A lot of questions that have been asked of the British government have come off the back of the perceived success of France's decision to introduce this kind of a system and the huge surge in vaccinations that came off the back of that. What we don't know is what the long-term effect of that decision is, right, Matt? And that's something that you alluded to there, that it may increase distrust of government programs in the long term so what would be interesting to understand and i guess we won't see this for some time in france or any other country where 
um, COVID passes or something like that are mandatory for access to certain services is who got a vaccine off the back of that requirement and who didn't? Who did it leave behind? And how's that going to create what Liberty is saying is a two-tiered system? And that's, I'd imagine, why countries like the UK are reticent to go down the COVID pass route, although it's being hinted at more and more by the day, right? I think Saeed Javid was saying that there's a strong likelihood, or maybe it was Michael Gove, of a requirement for a COVID pass to enter a Premier League football match as a spectator. So that's mission creep to an extent. But I guess what we don't want to do is come up with a short-term solution to a problem that is going to carry on for years and years. We're not just going to need to be vaccinating people now, right? We're going to need to be vaccinating them potentially for many years to come. And you've got to build trust in the system to make that successful, right? Yeah, trust is essential to lots of the, our uses of technology and interactions with government and other services and, and all types of businesses, essentially. So I think that while obviously there are lots of valid concerns around sort of like the scope of these uh, schemes and how they could increase. And uh, quite often, if you're speaking to people, they will bring up sort of the most extreme edge cases of, uh, for instance, China and its systems of digital identity and identification. Um, I think that when you're talking about these uh, in in uh, in larger democracies and things like that, it's important that if you're talking about the use of these apps and controls for, for these types of things, you take into account who will be left out who may be left behind by these types of systems putting measures in place to make sure that this isn't the case go out and then proactively uh promote uh sort of like how everybody can be involved in these things and make sure people aren't being left behind in any way and it's also important to have i guess of like sunset clauses on these types of things if possible uh so saying that uh actually we want people to use these now these are these are the reasons why we think it's a good idea to use them this is how we're doing this is how we're making it the system fairer uh but ultimately we're going to stop using it at this date or when this certain thing happens and i think that's one way to show trust by saying that actually this isn't a long-term thing these are the these are the reasons why why and when we'll stop using it so uh, i think there are ways that trust can be gained but yeah i think some of the concerns are very valid around uh sort of these uh the creep of these systems and those concerns are, are born out of historical precedent right we're not in uncharted territory here i think the u.s banned entry from anyone who was known to be HIV positive for more than 20 years. That was a restriction that was only lifted um, by the federal government in 2010 and introduced in the 1980s. So this isn't something that hasn't happened before. And the concerns that are being raised and the nuance that you're talking about there is making sure that with the sheer number of people who are being infected by COVID-19 and the scale of this pandemic, that we don't end up in a situation where many, many millions of people, and when we're talking about continents like Africa with an incredibly low vaccination rate, whole countries, whole regions of the world are treated like second-class citizens because countries are mandating the use of certain systems to access services, to access society. It's going to be a really, really big issue. If it feels like something that's just being used to encourage vaccine take-up now, it won't feel like that in a few years when we're still dealing with the fallout of this pandemic and we're still in this pandemic i think that's an important point to remember podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that it's a hugely complicated topic and it's one that we're going to stay very close to on wired we'll include a link to our most recent story 
in the show notes but do get in touch podcast at wired.co.uk we'll leave it there for this week and wish you all a happy weekend take care and we'll see you next week goodbye bye bye